0: to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Ilana Levin, aka Twitter's Ilana Brooklyn. And today I'm going to be interviewing a really awesome creator in the comic scene who I've been wanting to have on the show for a long time and we're finally making it happen. Joining me is Christina Steen-Stort. Christina Steen-Stort is a St. Louis-based cartoonist, editor, and professor. She's the cartoonist on the syndicated comic strip, Heart of the City the co-creator of the Dwayne McDuffie Award-winning graphic novel, Archival Quality, and is featured in short story anthologies such as Eisner and Ignatz' winning series, Elements, Fire, Mine, and Deadbeats. Steens launched and edited the popular role-playing game periodical, Rolled and Told. She participates in and creates community-building comics-related programming and is a frequent panelist at Comic-Con's. Steens currently teaches cartooning at Webster University while editing titles for Mad Cave Studios. Welcome to the show.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: You know, when I was listening the um the anthologies that you've contributed work to, we've literally covered every single one of them on this podcast. Oh my so, God,
1: that's great.
0: <laughs> I hope that all of our listeners have seen your work in at least one way or another at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Um and you know I think we met through Desiree Rodriguez at New York Comic Con or something like that.
1: Yeah, that sounds pretty accurate.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um well it's exciting to have you on the show. Um let's talk a little bit about how you got started in comics uh, as you know as as a reader and then and then as an artist.
1: Yeah, sure. So um I actually wasn't reading um you know traditional single issue floppies until I was in college actually. Um I didn't really grow up with anyone that read comics and I didn't go to school with anybody that read comics or rather I didn't know anyone at school. And so, um, it was kind of like a a foreign thing to me. Meanwhile, um, I have been watching, you know, DC animated TV shows and movies for as long as I can remember. And I was reading graphic novels as well when, um, when I was in high school. So I had, you know, a a pretty clear idea of what comics were, but not in the sense of like single issue comics that you go to a comic shop for, you know? Um, And it wasn't until college when a friend of mine was like, hey, you know what? Let's Get into comics. Let's get all the way in, like picking up a, a, a store and reading a bunch of back issues. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. Because, you know, when you're in college, you have a lot of time on your hands. Uh, so we decided to really get into comics at that point. And um, it, while I was reading comics, I was also in school for illustration um, with a focus on painting. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my degree or with anything, um, because, you know, I was in college and that's how it is. Um, and so I, uh, considered, you know, working, um, with some kind of illustration, but, you know, the professors that I had, they were kind of leaning me towards, you know, gallery art or Mm -hmm. children's book illustrations, which like, I have nothing against, but it, d- it didn't feel like that's what I should be doing, you know? Um, and at a point we were in a portfolio review and they were just like, well, you know, it doesn't seem like you think that we can really help you a whole lot. And I was like, well, can you? <laughs> and, um, you know, that was at the point where I was like, you know what, I'm just going to not go back because uh, it's, you know, really, really um Hindering my ability to actually move forward, um, I felt like I was kind of standing at a standstill. So um, I left college and it was better for me financially, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I had to get into the workforce. And then after a couple of different jobs over a few years, I ended up working at a local comic shop. Um, and as I was working there, that's when I was like, really, really getting into single-issue comics for the first time. And, I mean, I was just gobbling books up. We had a a library system at the shop where if you borrow a book, you just have to bring it back within the week. Or, you know, if someone like specials orders it, then, yeah, you need to give the book up. But um, Mm -hmm. it was a really great way for me to kind of jump back into the comics industry from a single issue standpoint and not just in collections that I could find, you know, through my library. Um, and so I was working at the comic shop and, um, after the first year I ended up being a manager and I managed that for the next three or four years. And while I was managing, that's when I, um, was, you know, really looking closer at who are the people that are actually making these comics, because, you know, this is something that I'm starting to feel like I want to be a part of. And, um, one of the comics that I saw was Samurai Jack and it was by Brittany Williams. And, um, I had been following them online for a while. And when I saw their name on the cover, I think that's when it finally hit me that, you know that's a job that I can do. You know, I finally saw somebody that looked like me who was, you know, a black, uh, femme person. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I can do. Like, what if I tried to do this? And so, um, as I was working there, I started doing some like short comics with the local, um, indie comics group, uh, ink and drink comics, where every season we put out a a new Uh, anthology of series of comics based on a genre of comics. And I did that a couple of times and it really was helpful with, you know, learning how to work collaboratively, learning how to, you know, put my pages together digitally, learning how to work with an editor. And, you know, I didn't get paid for it, (laughs) but it was um, a really great learning experience. And I was able to do it while I was working at the comic shop. Um, And I think from then is where I started to really get more into the comics industry as a retailer. You know, I was, um, an admin for the Valkyries and I was really trying to put more of my work out there. Um, even if it was, you know, smaller, shorter stuff. And, um, through the Valkyries is where I met, uh, Ivy Noel Weir. And ever since then we were just like, you know what? we should be making comics together. So yeah, it it was a a really interesting way to to get into the comics industry kind of um, in a semi-late fashion.
0: And just for anybody who's unfamiliar, the Valkyries was a group of um, predominantly, I believe, women Mm -hmm. working in comics retail. Yes. Um, So one of the things about your story that's just really impressive to me is just that you had enough self-knowledge to realize that like where, what you were doing in college wasn't like serving your 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 ultimate goals for yeah. you, like that's kind of amazing.
1: Yeah, but I you know I wouldn't really glamorize it because it was awful. I mean, yeah, it you know it, the idea that you know your parents want you to not go into the arts because you can't make money off of it is real. You know, yeah, um, yep. and having to deal with that feeling on top of living at home um, was probably one of the worst moments of my life. So, you know, it was definitely a good thing that I did it, but going through it was absolutely terrible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think that, you know, everybody's path into the industry is always, you know, pretty different, especially for people who aren't like white straight men of a certain generation. Exactly. Um, but I think like seeing how important the networks of people you built around you, mm-hmm. um, is like a pretty key part of, of what, of what, of what happened to of how you created your success.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I was doing, um, a conversation with Gabby Rivera, um, I think maybe a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. And they, said something that really stuck with me, which was that, you know, you're not networking, you're building communities. And I totally agree with that because your community, that's the kind of people that you want around you who is going to to help push you in the direction that you need to be in. They're the people that are doing the same thing that you're doing. And it's always um, easier to take risks, take chances and really push yourself when you have other people who support you you know? Mm -hmm. So having the Valkyries behind me was really, really great. Having the ink and drink team behind me was great. So, you know, I had the support from my community if I didn't get, you know, immediate support from my family.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also think like there's been, there's very much like this generation of of artists coming up who um, have, you know, really done a lot of impressive work, just getting their own, Work out online and doing these anthologies independently, etc. That a lot of them um, were stuff that were you know were started through kick through Kickstarter, etc. Uh, how did how did archival quality, uh, you know, which was published by Oni Press, how did that come together?
1: So Ivy um, reached out to me about uh, making a, a comic together, and we had you know, grown closer at, as friends at the time. And so when she asked me to, to make a comic with her, I was like, yeah, absolutely, of course, <laughs> what it is about. <laughs> and so she told me, you know, what the basic story was and, and where the idea came from. And I was like, absolutely. Uh, this, like, there's no other option for me. I have to do it. Um, so uh, we had planned on making it a webcomic, actually. And just as webcomics are now, um, the entry level for that is very low, you know, it's free for the most part. I mean, you can pay like an extra $2 a month to get an actual, um, domain name that you want, but you know, there are plenty of websites out there where you can upload, um, a web comic and we were going to do it through, you know, Tumblr and doing some back um, uh, fixing of, you know, to make it look like the website we needed it to work like, And, uh, as we were working on it, that's when Oni Press opened up the, uh, open submissions. And, um, we were like, you know what, what are the chances of us getting picked? But if we send it in and we do get picked, that's great. If we don't get picked, we're still going to put it up online. So we really don't have anything to lose. Um, and so when we put it in, it was really like nerve wracking because, you know, we didn't hear anything back for like two months and we had anticipated, you know, setting up the, the website and we didn't want to put the website up if they were going to publish it. So we were just kind of like, oh, uh, what do we do? <laughs> and then finally, you know, they said that they accepted it and we were like, well, I guess we have to write the rest of the book now. Um, hmm. So, yeah, it was uh, really, really exciting to, to see it get picked, you know.
0: And it's interesting because the story is very much about, I mean, it's about someone who works in the library and Mm -hmm. loses her job and gets another job as an archivist. And there's ghosts, of course, and like romance and things along those nature. Um, (laughs) You know, it's, it's definitely like a a story that I think a lot of people in the audience would see themselves in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it was interesting because when we were putting the, book together at that time, both she and I had left comics retail and we were both working as librarians. So, you know, we had the background of, you know, graphic novels and really knowing what people want from their graphic novels. But then also we had the background of librarianship as well. So, you know, it was really interesting when we were promoting the book and we were basically promoting it as like a book by librarians for librarians. Um, and archivists, of course. So yeah, I I think it's, should always work on what you know. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. I feel like it was part of this like wave of stories that I saw coming after it. In fact, that were like a lot of stuff by and about like library work. It's so interesting because when I was younger, I just, that was not a thing people talked about, but now I really associate libraries with comics fans, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me of when, um, I was just, you know, left school. So I was not really knowing exactly what I wanted to do with myself. And, um, my local library had an incredible collection of graphic novels. And so I was just like devouring them, you know? And when I was there, one of the librarians there, you know, she was young and cool looking with like tattoos Mm -hmm. and stuff. And I was just like, oh my God, like, that's what I want to do. Like, you know, I want to work in books because I want to show more people that the people behind the desk, you know, can look like me at the same time. So, right? Um, yeah, definitely having her there and, you know, seeing other, you know, women of color doing you know jobs that you you don't anticipate us seeing or us doing was something that I, I really wanted to do
0: one of the things that I feel like I can really recognize I can always recognize your 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 work uh, yeah your cartoons and stuff <laughs> I appreciate that. Particular style <laughs> and then I was looking at your website and I remember it I actually had also seen your like less cartoon oriented uh, painted work yeah and, and it was interesting to sort of see like I can like you mm, I wouldn't have looked at both of those and been like, these are by the same person. But when you look at them (laughs) side by side, you're like, oh, I see how these could be by the same person. Like, how did you develop your artistic styles and like, how do they kind of relate to each other?
1: That's really interesting. You know, I've been on a lot of interviews and this is the first time anyone has asked me this question. And yeah, (laughs) but you know, it's interesting to think about because I do have pretty, you know, two distinct styles, one for portraiture and one for cartooning. Um, I know when it comes to cartooning, I'm I'm kind of like a sponge. I feel like I pick up anything that kind of speaks to me, um, in terms of like the roundness of my characters that comes from Chris Sanders and then, um, the shape of the eyes, Gail Galligan, and then like the shading, um, Sean Galloway. So, you know, I take a little bit of everyone that I read, um, and it kind of, It informs my style. You know, people always ask, you know, how do I get a certain style? I think it's it's subconscious. You know, it's not something that you um, do intentionally. It's kind of like how, you know, you and I can write the same word, but they'll be in two different handwritings you know, and that can come from you wanting to write like Stacy in the babysitters club, which I did, (laughs) (laughs) Or, or, you know, you, maybe you have, you know, a parent that was really into calligraphy. So your cursive is incredible, you know, so all of anything that we do kind of informs what comes out of us creatively. Um, and I think that's kind of how my style happened. Um, at least when it comes to cartooning with painting, um, you know, I wanted to find a way to make it feel realistic, but also you know that it was painted or it was drawn. You know, I don't, not a photorealistic way, but in a way where it's like, that's clearly so and so. And it's also very clearly painted in oil, you know? And that's mm-hmm. kind of what I, I wanted to get out of all of my portraitures. Um, when I started doing that in school, we had um, a gallery opening where uh, a senior student, their their final project were these giant life-size paintings. I mean, like m- bigger than life-size uh, paintings of people in her life. And I thought it was just absolutely amazing. And I was like, the, her, her ability to capture the likeness of these people still have it look realistic and still have it look like this is art. This is a painting. This isn't just a photograph I thought was pretty incredible. And so that's kind of what I have been trying to emulate whenever I do, you know, more realistic work, but also, Mm. you know, play with colors. Um, I love watercolors. So the way that you mix colors and, and, and make decisions with watercolor is completely different than how you make your decisions when you're, oil painting, which is different when you do it digitally. So, you know, I really love the idea of trying different styles, different mediums, and still finding my style, you know, shining through the medium.
0: Were you working digitally when you were in school, or was that something
1: you started doing after? That was, you know, it was a little bit of both. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, I got my first um, Wacom tablet when I was maybe... 16, 17 years old. I think 17 is more accurate. Um, And that's when I really started to get into drawing digitally. And I was in school at that time. So I was kind of trying to learn how to do both at the same time, Um, both digital and also oil painting um, and also watercolor. Um, And I think being at the learning stage for all three meant that all three of those skills were going to grow around the same time. Um, so it really wasn't a thing of which was first, because I, I think they were all kind of first. I guess traditional, like graphite on paper was first, but right, right, everything after that became, you know, from school.
0: That's interesting. You know, I think like, you know, so much about a cartooning is about being able to create recognizable figures you can tell who they are from panel to panel Mm -hmm. and like see them from these different angles and understand it to be the same person as their face move, as their bodies move. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, you have, you have people have a, generally a a cartoon style that's going to be more streamlined because it's just like impossible to um, have the sort of, for most people in most kinds of schedules have like the fully realized Detail level that you mm-hmm. might have if you were just doing straight up portraiture.
1: Yeah, you
0: know, to cover all of those different pages and panels. Like, how do you sort of? How do you sort of scope yourself to be reasonable to be able to, to not make over render or yeah
1: yeah yeah. Um, I mean the the biggest way is time keeps me from doing that. Um, you know, I I'm one of those people that if I start an illustration, I'm finishing it that night. Like I'm not going to work on something for longer than I have to, um, mm-hmm. unless I don't really want to work on it and then I'll, you know, I'll spread it out. But, um, <laughs> when it comes to my, my own work, I, I feel like I just, I don't want to draw all night long, <laughs> you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. So,
1: and, but I also think it is, it is definitely a skill to, um, capture someone's likeness in a way that is simplified. Because when I'm looking at people and I'm trying to capture their like- likeness, if I'm trying to make them look um, you know, like a cartoon, I have to pick out their features that I believe are their most um, noticeable features. Um, that could be either nose shape no size. It could be the shape of the eyes, the hair, different um, birthmarks, you know? So those are the kinds of things that I like to, to stay and to keep in mind and not think about including, you know, everything, you know, I don't include people's like, you know, minor wrinkles or, you know, Mm -hmm. zits or anything, because I mean, I could, but I don't have time for that. Um, And I think one of the things that you learn as a cartoonist is you You need to find a way to do it as, as efficiently but also as quickly as possible because you just don't have all the time in the world to finish your magnum opus, which, you know, some people do, but most people do not, <laughs> um, especially when it comes to strip comics. You know, I have to do 365 comics a year, you know, so that Jesus. means I'm not going to be spending a week on a strip. I have to do two strips a day. So that means I need to make sure that the characters that I've designed are not over-designed. A thing that I do with my students is I'll have them draw a cat and I'll give them five minutes to draw it. Then I'll give them three minutes and then one, and then 30 seconds, 10 seconds, and then five seconds. And I'm showing them that the things that you end up keeping in that five second are going to be the things that are most important. The cat is always going to have two pointy ears, always going to have whiskers. The tail is always going to look a certain way. And that's a really good way for you to figure out what is a part of someone's um, features that makes them who they are. You know, the longer you look at it, the harder it's going to be to make it look exactly right. But if you get some things like the pointy ear, the whisker, the tail, Everyone's going to say, "Oh, it's a cat," you know. Yeah, um, yeah. But also, I, I found I was doing a test for um, for a a young reader's book, so lower than middle grade. I'm talking like second, third grade. Mm-hmm. And I was working on the character designs for this project, and I was showing it to another person, uh, another peer of mine who was also working in that age range. And you know, she was saying that. Books for younger readers don't need to be as detailed. We don't need to see, you know, all the pearls on this person's necklace. We don't need to see, they don't need to be wearing layered clothing that's just like overwhelming because, you know, it needs to be as clean and clear as possible. And so I found that my cartooning actually got better after doing that short sample because I was learning how to make the same characters that I was thinking of in my head, but simplify them even further so that you know, I don't find myself working longer because of all the details that I have to put into it.
0: Well, one shortcut that you definitely don't take, which I'm glad about is making everybody have the same face and bodies to shape and fashion <laughs> style. Um, you know, uh, I've definitely heard artists say that, that they do things that way uh, to save time, but yeah. you, you are someone who has made a commitment to have body diversity in their comics. And you even draw very adorable stretch marks. I was (laughs) like, yeah,
1: that is cute. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I think, you know, I I, I think about when I was growing up and I'm like watching cartoons or reading books. And one of my favorite things to to look at was what made each of the characters different. You know, not, not because I wanted to know how to draw them, because I wanted to remember who they were you know? Mm. So, like, if I'm watching Recess and someone's wearing a knit hat, well, it's Spinelli, you know? I don't need to see their entire face. They could be running across the screen and I would know exactly who they are, you know? And I try and do the same thing with comics, where you should be able to tell who's speaking, even if they're, you know, turned around, or they have their hands over their head, or something like that. And it's not easy because when you're learning to draw, it's really a thing of repetition and that's how you get that practice in. You know, you draw the same face over and over and over and over again so that you no longer have to look at a reference. You can just draw it from memory. And the idea of that repetition makes it harder to stay consistent. Um, but also makes it harder for you to, to deviate, you know, um, Mm. I find myself when I'm working really fast and I'm not actually paying attention to what I'm doing, like if I'm watching TV or something, um, it could be a a scene with heart and I'll just accidentally draw Dean. And I'll look at it and be like, what is he doing in this scene? How did that even happen? And it was because I had done like, seven ish, seven, seven strips of a Dean centric story. So like my muscle memory was just there. Like this is, this must be a Dean story, you know? And so it's something that I do have to think about, um, intentionally every single time I draw is what's the silhouette, who is this person? How do they carry themselves? Because that's how you create characters that are you know, long lasting. That's how you create characters that people will remember years from now, you know?
0: And fashion is a big part also of like what I recognize in your style and like really having a sense of who wears what kind of clothes and what contemporary fashion looks like.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I like to read comics that if they're modern, I want it to feel modern. And if I'm reading it, and it looks like they're wearing clothes from like the nineties, it's going to take me out of it. You know, I want mm-hmm. that immersion, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. It's interesting to say that because I never really thought I was the kind of person that needed to have that immersion, but it's true. You know, like I don't want to be distracted because someone's in like a fro and like big old sunglasses. Like, I don't know. I just feel like if you want to make it realistic and if you want someone to actually relate to the comic you have to find a way to to make it seem like you know things that they're used to as often as possible and that means making sure you know what people are wearing and what their style is what their favorite colors are what they would definitely not wear I think it's also part of the character development I mean
0: yeah
1: I think about like me and my twin sister and while I personally don't think we look the same you know one of the things that set us apart is our style you know Um, I'm very like comfort core (laughs) and she's very much like, I don't know, an e-girl, I guess. (laughs) So, you know, I don't know. I I think clothing as well as what the actual character is shaped like, they kind of go hand in hand.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And there's a ton of color work. I mean, you're, you're, you're coloring your own comics in all of these cases, right? No. No. no,
1: thank God. Oh, um, I mean, archival quality and all of my um, anthologies. Yes, I do color all of that. All of my, right. you know, illustrations. Um, but heart of the city, no. Um, heart of the city is colored by the color department at Andrews McNeil, which is oh. not something I knew existed until I got the job.
0: <laughs> nice. Yes. Yeah, so tell me, like you're writing a syndicated comic strip now, basically, right? Yeah.
1: That's so, amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I don't know if you saw this, but I was going through the the deepest, darkest depths of my deviant art. And one of the things that I found from when I was 17 was I was practicing how to draw like in a comic strip, syndicated comic style. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this is wild that I had something from when I was 17 and now I'm actually doing it for my job. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, working on a syndicated comic is completely different from working on graphic novels and a single issue series. It's just, it's just completely different.
0: <laughs> yeah. And obviously the timeline and then the physical format, like how does that impact your storytelling?
1: Oh, it's, it's weird. So, you know, when people always say like, oh, well, you're a writer in my head, I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm a cartoonist. Like I, I write, Everything that I draw, you'll never see me write anything that isn't accompanied with art. So I don't really like being considered a writer because I don't like writing without art. Um, mm. So when I got the job, one that, well, rather, let me back it up. When I was auditioning for the job, they mm. wanted me to do a series of weekly comics. So, they call them dailies. So, anything from Monday through Saturday is a daily, and then Sunday is the Sunday comic. So, I needed to do two weeks worth of comic, where there was an overarching story, but every issue was self-contained, sorry, every strip was self-contained. So, you can read a single strip and, be, and get the, the punchline, but if you read all 14 of them in a row, you'll see the entire story arc. So, considering I've never had to write in prose, I've never had to really write a comic script for anyone. I don't really do long form anything. It wasn't really difficult for me to make this change because it didn't really feel like a change. It felt like something new, you know? Um, and so the hard part though, was finding the punchline for every day. Um, yeah. The way that I do it is I'll do three months of story And I'll send that to my editor because I like to work ahead. Um, That's just how I am. I'll send three months of story to my editor. She'll go through it to make sure that it flows right. um, Nothing seems off or weird. And then, for example, this week, it's Monday. I'm working on Monday and Tuesday finals. Last week, I did the roughs for them. And the roughs, I referenced the three months that I had already written. And so for the roughs, this Monday I'm doing for next week. So today's agenda is the finals for Monday and Tuesday of the week prior, and then the roughs for Monday through Thursday for my next week. Now, the Monday and Tuesday that I'm doing isn't for what is going to go up next week. I'm several months ahead. I'm like a month and a half ahead. So I'm currently in September. (laughs) So it's really hard to like explain it and not be super, super confused, but I think of it kind of like a puzzle. I've got all of these pieces that need to go together into one arc, and then I need to figure out how I'm going to dole it out in my calendar so that I'm doing them at the right time and in the right order. Um, Storytelling wise, it's actually I really enjoy it because I prefer writing short stories rather than any really, really long one. And so the idea that I can just take one little scene, like, for example, when Hart goes to get her ears pierced, I can stretch that out to be two weeks long. But it's really only a story that goes across like, you know, a few days. Um, it's relatively short when you write it out, Hart wants to get her ears pierced. Her mother makes her write a, a note for why she holds up her, her case in fake court and her mother surprises her with it that she already got her, you know, her appointment made. And then she goes and get it. And so you have to kind of like build it out. What, what happens on Monday? Then what happens on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, so on and so forth. Well, then also Sunday comics are hard because some newspapers only get Sunday comics. So, and then there are some newspapers that only get dailies. So you have to put together a story where the Sunday is a part of the story, but not so much that if you only get Sundays, you're super confused. (laughs) So
0: it's... That sounds tremendously hard.
1: (laughs) I mean... To begin with, yeah. But I am very good at scheduling and compartmentalizing things. So it works for me. Um, That's amazing. But I know there are some people who would never be able to do it because it's just, it's so strict. You know, people, anytime you talk to any comic strip artist, they say it's grueling work because there's always more comics to write. It's really never-ending, you know. And my contract, you know, is three years long with the... uh, Um, opportunity to extend it. So I could very well be writing it and illustrating this until, you know, 20 years from now. So you have to really get into the headspace that you are never not going to be drawing every, every day. Wow.
0: How did you develop the core concept for Heart of the City?
1: So when I was approached for the story you know, they were saying that Mark Tattuli, he no longer wants to, you know, continue. It's time for him to step down, um, which, you know, it, it made sense for him because Hart, he was making Hart get older and he wasn't able, he didn't feel like he had, you know, the kind of stories that he wanted to tell anymore while she was in middle school. And, you know, as most syndicated comic strips are with young children, a lot of the jokes come from the fact that kids don't know anything you know, and you can't really use those same jokes in middle school because they're growing up and they're not just, you know, wide eyed about the world around them. They're wide eyed about themselves and their friends and their connections. And that's just what middle school is. Um, so when they approached me for it, I was like, Whoa, well shit. Oh, I'm sorry. My mistake.
0: No, you can curse as much as you want.
1: (laughs) Um, when I was looking at it, I was like, okay, so I need to read like years and years of this comic. And thankfully, Go Comics has them all the way back until, you know, the very first issue. And so I was reading like a year of comics over the weekends. And I was just trying to get like as many years as possible and jumping around and trying to get like the main storylines and what's the most important stuff I need to keep. And as I'm like, Figuring out how I want to do the story because when she uh, when Sheena reached out to me, they were like, "Okay, well, we want you to do these roughs," and I was like, "Well, hold on, I don't want to start drawing anything yet because I don't even know what the treatment is, you know. I want to be able to like tell you the overarching story of Heart before I just jump right into dailies." Um, and so I was writing about how you know I think now is a time for Heart to take her. Um, excitement about the world and being the center of attention and seeing how that plays out in middle school, because you may be, you know, boisterous and and excited as a child, but by the time you hit middle school, things can change. And so that's what I wanted to show is the change of these characters. Um, They're growing up, they're learning about themselves and each other, And I was writing this and thinking of different storylines and how to take it back to some of the original ones. And Sheena was like, you don't need to do that. Like, we appreciate, obviously, how much you've read, but this is your story now. So this, you honestly don't have to use any of the comics that have already been made. And I was like, thank you, but no thank you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I would like to have some kind of anchor, you know, before I just go off into the wind and, and make these characters who I think they should be, you know, if anything, I just, you know, I was able to pinpoint what the, you know, pun intended, what the heart of the story was, um, which was, you know, the relationships that you have and, and, you know, growing up in the world um, and was able to make that for uh, older kids um, to a newer audience, you know?
0: What I what I what I think is really interesting though is you know like you're someone who's definitely spent some amount of time uh, you know reading like Marvel or DC mm-hmm. and like those are all about like so of course you know like when we're like here's this new comic series that has this long history of existing strips of course you're going to be like I'm going to deep dive and read everything yeah. and then use that <laughs> to create because that's like how comics folks who read that sort of comic you know, that's how we think generally. Yeah,
1: exactly. That's exactly what it is. And I'm like, so glad that you said it because I was like, this is normal, right?
0: (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) I'm like, wait, what? Yeah, This is it. (laughs) And we like to draw on that. Like, that's when the part of the appeal, you know, is the the history and all that.
1: Exactly. So like, there's a point where um, Hart wants to audition for the play. And a few years ago, she auditioned for the play. And... Cat actually got the lead and Hart did not. And Hart and Cat got into a fight about it, like an actual physical fist fight about it. And because they got into a fist fight, they were both suspended and neither could be in the play. And so when I found out from the powers that be um, at Andrews and Meal that they really wanted the focus to be on the kids— and her interest in theater, I was like, okay, well, she should probably try and be in the play again. And so if you actually look, <laughs> there's a line in, in one of the original or the comics that I started back in April. Um, Dean is like, you're trying to get in the play, didn't you get the lead last year and then get suspended over fighting for it? And she was like, well, well, you know, every great actress has a sordid past. And that was like the punchline. And so for a minute, you know, Sheena was like, well, you don't need to include the part that she already, you know, tried to get in the play. And I was like, no, but that's like I don't know. I I feel like there are some devoted readers out there, (laughs) you know, and they're going to want to see those kind of callbacks because I would want to see those kinds of callbacks.
0: Right. And I, I, you know, I didn't grow up reading that particular strip. It wasn't in my papers that I read growing up. And so I don't have a history with the series. And even though I, so even though I don't have a history with it, I like the joke, the way you tell it as it being a callback, even though I wasn't even there for the initial thing.
1: Yeah. And so I think that's one of the things that's actually hardest is trying to find something that's funny for both readers who have always been reading and then new readers and then trying to find something where the humor isn't, you know, a certain kind of humor. So, like, for example, um, there is a scene where now this is a future scene, but they are there's a teacher's protest. At a teacher strike, and nice. um, Hart is kind of late to the game. <laughs> She's basically like, "This should be great, you guys. We don't have school," <laughs> and all of her friends are slowly joining the ranks of the teachers' protest. You know, making signs like "Students for Teachers" because they're they're realizing Yay. that this is you know this is the right thing to do. Eventually, after talking to her mother and feeling like she was left out because she didn't understand it. Once she understood it, she was like, oh, then, yeah, they should totally be protesting. And so, you know, she joins in and it's great. And then at the end, you know, the history teacher is like, you know, the uh, Department of Education gave us our uh, increase in funds. So we'll be going back to school next week. And Hart comes out of the side of the panel like, so we're going to get like extra credit for protesting, (laughs) considering we were a part of history for history class. Right. And, and of course the history teacher is like, no. And so the joke could have been either shouldn't protesting be credit for history, or maybe these sign drawings could be good credit for art. Or the joke could have been the teacher saying we fought for what we wanted. And then heart saying, can I get extra credit cat face palming? And then heart saying, Hey, I'm fighting for what I want. So, you know, the two different kinds of jokes. And I think that's where uh, my editor and I butt heads the most, honestly, is on which kind of joke is more true to heart or which joke do I think more people would find funnier, you know? Because they're both funny, but it's just right, right. which one's going to be more effective.
0: Well, I, as someone who uh, has worked for teachers unions and who has friends who works for teachers unions and have friends who are like like shop stores at of their like actual teacher union, I am very enthusiastic about <laughs> comics content that is supportive of teachers fighting for the money they need to survive and support their classrooms.
1: Absolutely, um, I you'll know when it's coming when the the lead up to that is. Um the school is like falling apart. Like her hist- history book is like falling apart. Kids are like falling off of the swing set, and she's like, "Has this always been this this crappy?" <laughs> and so, <laughs> eventually, they they realize like, "Oh, the school's in a state of disrepair, and the teachers need the funds." Obviously, we're going to go to, on a strike for this.
0: I love this. This makes me very excited. I'm going to go tell them all about it after <laughs> we're done. Like for real, we like. Dear Asher, did you know there was about to be a teacher's strike story in a popular syndicated comic? Yeah. Um, That's very exciting. Like, that really is. I mean, for me growing up, I I grew up in a... um, My parents were, like, super political. Yeah. But one of the things that I got... One of the ways I did learn about political political things was from reading comic strips Mm -hmm. as well. So I think it's important.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think about it as, like... When I was, my inspiration when I'm drawing this kind of stuff, honestly, doesn't really come from comics. It kind of comes from cartoons. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think about how um, adult they felt as I was reading it, as I was watching these comics or these cartoons. So, like, hey, Arnold, when they talk about, you know, Pigeon Man, that's a really good discussion on, like, how to treat, you know, the homeless. And then we've got, um, you know, recess when uh, King Bob has to go and someone else takes his place. And it's like this, you need to know what's fair and what's not fair and how to treat people. And the idea that I could get those kinds of stories across myself is like really exciting for me because I feel like I learned a lot from those kinds of cartoons. And I was, I would hope that people read heart and they get to learn that kind of stuff as well. So whether it's a teacher strike or, you know, making friends with somebody who is going to a soup kitchen and they might be embarrassed about being at a soup kitchen or, you know, being in a a house where you have a combined family, you know, with stepsisters and half sisters, you know, so the kind of stuff that I feel is universal is the kind of thing that I would like to do with heart is get those heavy stories in, but in a lighthearted way that also has a punchline every single day. (laughs)
0: That's a lot to, that's a lot to go for, but I, I think you're going to do it. That's Thank awesome.
1: you. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs>
0: well, one of the projects I want to make sure we talk about is rolled and told. Yeah. Um, I, I played Dungeons and Dragons and other pen and paper, as we would call it role-playing games myself. And um, I heard a bit about, about this project and I, but I feel like I didn't pick it up until a little bit later uh, can, I, and I actually haven't covered it all yet on the show. So let's tell our listeners about what rolled and told uh as a, as a, as a, as a concept and, and what it's all about.
1: Yeah. So rolled and told is, was a, a series of magazines where every month you get two modules that you can put into your own campaigns. And so it could be a long form one, which is about four to six hours or a short form one, which is about two to three hours. And it works like any other kind of uh, gaming supplement where it'll tell you exactly how to run it, when to say so and such. Um, what to roll all of the things that go into making a module that follows uh, dnd 5e but you also get articles about gaming so it could be anything from how to play romance uh, respectively or re- uh, re- respectfully um how yeah. to uh dm for a large group of people versus a few people um, so there's a lot of different articles you get three articles for every issue and also art and comics throughout the entire thing um, and these comics are actually really helpful because oftentimes dms would try and you know explain what things look like and that is a, a really good um skill to have, but also it's really nice to be able to just flip the book around and be like, look at this comic. This is what we're going to be playing. Um, mm-hmm. So every month was based on a theme, whether it's sky pirates or Halloween or wizard school. And um, that was the theme for the issue. So uh, Lion Forge put that out uh, monthly. Um, and then they had a collection of issues one through 12 um, and one through six into a hardcover, which was volume one, which came out, I believe, July-ish of last year. And then volume Mm -hmm. two actually comes out this month, if it's not already out. Um, Oh, shoot. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I got let go because they were combining Oni Press and Lion Forge, and I did not make the cut um, until they realized that I was the only one doing rolled and told. And, uh, you know, they reached out and asked if I still wanted to do it on like a freelance basis. And I told them to eat shit. So, um, yeah, so it's over. It doesn't exist anymore. So if you do find rolled and told out in the wild, buy it as soon as you can, because all there is is those 12 single issues and the two hardcovers
0: I, I, this story is just so crazy to me because like Rolled and Told was such an innovative concept. And right now there's this huge, I mean, you know, the Adventure Zone, the popularity of that podcast has definitely done a lot to make role-playing games a thing that even more people want to get involved in. And then right now with COVID, I'm finding that I have friends who had never played role-playing games before. Who are, who are asking me, like, how can they get involved? How can they get started in doing them? Because it's a good remote activity you can it do is. with your friends when you're not in person. And I want to get onto that in just a minute, but to finish to this point, like, there's this huge opportunity right now. And then to be so short-sighted to like fuck somebody over who's who's, like the brain behind this really ingenious like project is just ridiculous to me.
1: Well, you know, well, for the one thing, I wasn't the entire brain behind it. You know, one of the the people that made it was, you know, the president at the time of Lion Forge and I basically made it come to life. I put my thumbprint on it for sure. Um, but I definitely spearheaded the entire project. You know, he had the idea, I made it happen. Um, but, you know, it, it didn't really, it wasn't really even like short sighted, like, oh, this isn't important. It was short sighted as in they didn't know what I did there. <laughs> so, oh, God. yeah. So if they knew, then I don't think I would have been let go, to be perfectly honest. But, you know, it all worked out in the better. And, you know, like I said, they can eat shit.
0: I mean, respect for you speaking out and t- and telling and telling your story. I know it's really risky and hard for people to do that. Um, yeah,
1: I mean, I'm not supposed to like disparage a company, but I don't think I'm really disparaging anyone no, by saying no. the truth, which is they didn't know what I did, which is why they got screwed over.
0: Yeah, totally. Well, what, so but but if we buy the comics, mm-hmm. like you you that money goes to you. Still? No, no,
1: none of it. None uh, of no, it? unless you see me at a convention. So I buy it from them so that I can sell it at my booth. So if you buy it from me personally, then yes, it goes to me. But if you get it from like Amazon or a bookstore or whatever, or directly from Oni, it goes to Oni. I get none of it.
0: And what if we are living in a time where we might not be at a convention in the near future? What would be the best way to purchase this amazing object and have it support the creators? Are you able to sell stuff from your site or no?
1: I am not, No. Ah, okay. I know it's disappointing, but, you know, I do go to cons, you know, partially for this reason. You know, I want people to be able to still get the book because, you know, they're not selling it in stores. So it's really just sitting there. (laughs) So it's really just kind of up to me and whoever else was involved in the book, which is plenty of people, you know, there's about anywhere from 15 to 20 different creators per issue and they vary Mm -hmm. per issue. So I have found that most of those creators still purchase the book from Oni so that they can sell it at their, uh, their tables.
0: Gotcha. Well, um, I really think it's a very cool project and like a very useful tool. Like, I mean, the fact that you have a, a thing about how to, make it possible for players to role play romance without it getting creepy or uncomfortable. Yeah. Is like such an important part of being able to make gaming more accessible for folks because it is. I think like for someone like me, like I I enjoy combat but if we're just doing combat i'm not i'm, I'm much more interested in the interpersonal Me interactions too. part of role-playing games oh yeah and same. so <laughs> therefore like romance is going to be part of it yeah. but i also don't want to have anything be creepy and weird <laughs> so threading that needle is
1: really hard It and like, is. Yes, this is it <laughs> it is but that's you know learning about different ways that you can do that um it kind of, you know, it gets me excited for, you know, the next book that I'm doing, um, which is SideQuest, a visual history of tabletop role-playing games. Um, Whoa. Yeah. So that actually is going to be coming from Macmillan Imprint, uh, Spring 23. It's by me and Sam Satin. And essentially we're doing a semi-memoir slash uh, graphic novel history of tabletop role-playing games from early China to now.
0: Oh, my God. So how did you how did you start playing RPGs yourself?
1: That's uh, hard um, because I played it in college and s- sort of at the end of high school with some of my friends. We played Mage the Ascension, which oh, yeah. I really enjoyed <laughs> because I played D&D once and I hated it. Um I felt like it had way too many numbers and I just I don't really uh-huh. like fantasy to be perfectly honest. I actually hate fantasy. I don't like witches or wizards or magic. I don't like it. Um and so it was really exciting to do mage because I was like, oh, this takes place now a modern role-playing game? Absolutely. And so I had a lot of fun playing that and then now I play Starfinder with my group. So I don't know. I do it because I like hanging out with my friends and it's a kind of cool thing to do, but I am not very passionate about it. I happen to have the opportunity to open up the uh, tabletop uh, role playing game industry to more eyes, which I think is really great. And I also want to make sure that people see that um, all types of people are playing TTRPGs and always have been. Um, I think that's really important, but I also don't want to lead anyone astray to think that I really care that much about tabletop (laughs) role playing games because I'd much rather draw comics than play, you know? Um, Interesting. We're just kind of in the world where we have limited time, you know, and I want to spend my time making comics. So wait, what's the game that you're playing right now? You said Starfire? Starfinder. It's uh, Paizo. Starfinder. Yeah, it's oh, okay. basic. I mean, it's, uh, you know, most Paizo games like Pathfinder and all of that, they have, they're pretty, they're relatively number heavy, but because they're sci-fi, I'm more um, forgiving of that. Um, and I really, really, really love sci-fi, so.
0: Ah, okay. Interesting.
1: Yeah, I've played one.
0: Oh God, I don't even know how to explain Pathfinder to people. <laughs> I know, um, it's so hard. <laughs> It's like, it's, I'm like, I feel like I'm literally going to lie when I explain this. Like, I think it might be like a, a, a an unauthorized D&D type game structure. I mean, but That's yeah. trying to make it less, yeah.
1: I feel like the best way to explain it is D&D is Coke and Pathfinder is Pepsi. They are both yes. dark sodas and they are good in their <laughs> own ways but they are also different.
0: (laughs) I love it. Um, Well, so for folks who um, haven't played role-playing games before and are interested in starting to do it as a a Mm -hmm. COVID activity, well, one, folks, I'm working on putting together a podcast episode that'll be just about that topic because I think there's a lot to be said and a lot of you know voices to bring in to figure out how to do it but if you have thoughts about ways that to make it easier for folks to want to start playing to to do that like we'd love love to hear some of your thoughts
1: yeah um I honestly would say well first of all you have to have a, a relatively large group um it, you can do tabletop where it's one-on-one but I feel like you'd have more fun if you did it with at least three more people you know Mm -hmm. Um, so keep that in mind. That is one thing that does lead people astray is the fact that you kind of need to have, um, friends (laughs) to play the game. Um, but I think one of the ways to make it, uh, more open is when it comes to the illustrations. Um, because whenever I think of D and D and I think of the people that are playing D and D, they pretty much look like the stranger things kids you know? And Mm -hmm. I think that comes from the media that we're fed. And so if we are fed the kind of media that shows the demographic and the makeup of that industry as it actually is, which is very diverse, then more people would be more inclined to join. You know, it's the same thing for why I didn't really consider making comics because I didn't see anyone who looked like me doing it. You know, so I think if we're going to make anything more accessible, it's all about what is put out visually, you know, show people these are the people who play it. And this is the kind of stuff that you can get into. And if you like, you know, diverse storytelling or, um, you know, really creative storytelling that doesn't have to revolve around this one idea, then you can be into tabletop role playing games.
0: One of the things that you you mentioned, like, you don't like, you you felt like Dungeons & Dragons was really mathy. And for me, that was always the holdup when I was younger. I was like, this seems like there's, like, a spreadsheet and there's numbers. and I don't want to have to deal (laughs) with or think about it. So I, like, developed strategies to be able to, like, reduce the amount of mathiness. But there's totally games that are even less
1: mathy than D&D. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean you know, this kind of gets into what we talk about in the book, but, you know, there are some role-playing games that don't use math at all. You know, a part of it is yeah. the chance, you know, but that's not the same thing as math. Um, that's not the same thing as trying to add up your modifiers and, you know, multiply it by how many things you're holding. You know, that's different. Mm-hmm. You know, chance is yeah. just rolling a dice. And I, I think there are some, you know, early role-playing games everything from, like, Mr. Re, like, look up, like, Mr. period Re, R-E-E. It's basically, like, an early form of mafia or werewolf. Um, Then you've got, like, um, Greek leaders making, um, basically filling their amphitheaters with water so that they could host naval battles to, like, reenact naval battles. You know, and and that's role-playing. You know, so while it's not anything that depends on chance, it's still a part of role playing that kind of goes into what tabletop role playing is, you know? So once you realize that there is so many moving parts within that umbrella of tabletop role playing games, then you can see that you can take some of those moving parts that um, are more exciting to you and really Mm -hmm. lean on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that it doesn't, you know, and that there's different kinds of worlds. Like you were saying, mage is a contemporary. Yeah. I actually haven't played it before, but I've heard great things about the game.
1: I really love it. I mean, it makes it so much easier because it's just like, get a bag of like D10s and think about where, obviously you still have to do a, a... moderate form of character creation which can take time but some people like that yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) i mean that that is the best part so you do still have to do that but in terms of actual gameplay it really does rely on the the dm which is really interesting because in mage they don't call you a dungeon master they call you a storyteller because that's what you're doing you know you're telling a story and you are allowing your participants to be a part of the telling of that story.
0: When Kieran Gillen and Stephanie Hans were on the podcast to talk about Die, um, one of the things that Kieran had said was that role-playing games is like being in a band, but for storytelling.
1: And yes. I was just like, yeah, that's, "That's that works perfect. for you too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it is, it is, because I, I see it in the same way that I see it as ensemble writing. You know, the relationships that you have with the storyteller may be completely different than the relationship that you have with character A or character B you know so in gaming i basically am always trying to like one up or take the power away from my husband but you know in real <laughs> life not so much but meanwhile a completely other character I'm always pushing for them to do more, you know? So the idea that it's all about intra-relationships is the same thing as when it comes to writing comics and writing an ensemble cast. You want to make sure that each of those characters not only has a relationship with the main character, but also with each other, because it's just going to feel more real and make it more immersive.
0: You know, and different people will have different sort of play styles that are sort of like, you know, if somebody's in a punk band or they're playing hair metal, like it's different. Like I have um, somebody I know doesn't like playing when, in games where people do a ton of anachronistic stuff, sure. in, like older settings, not that they're trying to be like, this is a 500 years old. Like it's, it's fiction, yeah. but like there's certain <laughs> things that are, but, but, but sort of feels a little bit frustrated when the humor, cause it's usually humor mm-hmm. leans too much towards the modernist. Yeah. Can we just like not pretend that we're in like this contemporary world? I want to pretend I'm (laughs) in this old one. And for me, I like think that both things are fun. Yeah. So, you know, like that person might not want to be in a so-called storytelling band with some folks who rely on other kinds of humor. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, I I think that that's another part of storytelling. I mean, it's kind of like the same thing we were saying earlier, which joke is funnier? Well, they're both Mm -hmm. funny, but what do you want to get across to people? You know?
0: Right. Right. Well, thank you for joining me. I, this is like so many topics that I'm excited by. <laughs>
1: we did talk about um, a lot. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. I guess actually one more thing I was thinking about was just, you know, you're in St. Louis I and am. it seems like St. Louis has got its own specific comic scene in addition to its own barbecue scene, <laughs> and, which is <laughs> like the best barbecue scene. Um, I'm also a huge fan of the city museum. Ugh. Like it's amazing. It's greatest. Yeah, anybody who can like, well, god, I mean, if if the world ever stops being over, anybody who's capable of getting to St. Louis with their kids for a day trip to go to the St. Louis City Museum is going to have like the best time in the world. But um but yeah, St. Louis seems to be its own kind of like little comics hub in the way that Portland is one as well and uh, what are what are your thoughts about that?
1: I am a homebody. <laughs> So I'm trying to, I don't know. It's interesting. When I was working at the comic shop, I did feel like I had more of a connection to the comic scene because I was constantly trying to find people who were doing the comics work because I wanted to be a part of that world. I also wanted to bring in volunteers for my program, you know, for Comics University. So I was always trying to tap into what are local people doing now and what can they do to enrich the rest of, the industry, but Mm -hmm. I'm finding that the more um, comic work that I've I've gotten, the less time I really have to leave the house. And I think (laughs) that that shows up more so uh, this year because, you know, only in 2019 is when I was doing this freelance um, full time, you know? So this is actually the first time where I can actually be a part of the comic scene and don't have a tie to my place of work. And yet here we are now it's a pandemic and I can't really, um, you know, get into that. But I do think that the comic scene is, is, it's definitely here. I mean, there's plenty of people who live in St. Louis and and make comics. I think it's, it's harder because, um, a thing that happens in St. Louis is people don't like to leave their neighborhoods. So, while I could probably meet up with like several creators in South City, I wouldn't go because why would I go to South City? I live in U City, you know, and that's just kind of like the mindset of St. Louis. And I'm, I'm glad that there are more people who are trying to get out of that mindset. And like um, there's a, a professor here who teaches comics at Wash Her name is Shaius, uh, and she hosted Bad Drawing Club. So basically anyone who wants to come and draw comics and talk about comics, you know, can come to this drawing club and we can do that. And it's always been a hit and it's always been super successful. And I'm really glad I was able to participate um, the last half of 2019, you know, before the, the pandemic, because I do feel like the, the comic scene was becoming to be even more uh, of a camaraderie rather than we all make comics and we all happen to live in the same city, you know?
0: I think that's really cool. And there's also something great about, like, you know, there being artistic scenes in like cities around the country that people might not have always associated with having that particular piece. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, New York is like ridiculously unaffordable, for example. <laughs> and Portland is crazy unaffordable, um, but not quite as much unaffordable. And like, you know, it's like having other cities, I think, is really important to having a healthy, art culture even.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think about, um, you know, the comic scene here in, in St. Louis and we're all so talented (laughs) and I really would like more people to see that, you know, you don't have to go to a coast in order to be successful in the industry. Um, you know, a lot of people who are here are successful in the industry. And I think a part of that comes from, the ability to afford housing, you know, because I, I, am under the Mm -hmm. idea that you can, you do better when you have the basics taken care of food, shelter, you know, that sort of, those sort of needs and St. Louis is cheap. It's a cheap, cheap place to live. I mean, I, Am in the process of buying a house currently, there, there are people in, on both sides of the coast that can't even imagine what buying a house would be like. But because yeah. it's so inexpensive to live here and it feels like a, a big city or rather a city with a ton of smaller neighborhoods, um, you know, you don't feel like you're stuck. You don't feel like you're stuck in a cornfield of the Midwest because you live in a city like St. Louis.
0: And you have the best barbecue.
1: We do. Uh, Well, you know, I, I, I hesitate from saying we have the best only because I've only lived in Detroit and St. Louis. So I'm sure there's people out there who have really delicious barbecue, but (laughs) ours is very good.
0: (laughs) It truly, it truly, truly is. Um, And I hope that sometime I'll get to get back there again and Go to the museum, eat the barbecue, and maybe you meet some comics folks. Yeah. Well, let my listeners know uh, where they can find your work on the internet.
1: Yes. Yeah. So you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Steens. That's O-H-E-Y Steins. Um, I'm also on Instagram. You can look up my website, which is Um, I do a lot of podcasts and interviews. So if you just type in Steens, you'll find me.
0: Oh, and not to be like Columbo, but like one last question. Sure. <laughs> I do kind of feel like you're like Steens, which is almost like you're a mononym, like Cher or something. Yeah, and I think like, it's good because like, it's easier to Google, like, did, how did that become a thing? Like, so to have your name as a nickname.
1: I just never really cared about my name. Like, I didn't feel like I had any like, connection to it. I didn't really like it because my all of my siblings names are cool. Like my twin sister's name is Celeste. And then I've got a little sister named Layla, and Jabril is my little brother, and I was Aww. Christina. And I'm like, well, this fucking sucks. So um, I started trying to try out some nicknames, and my now brother-in-law actually gave me the nickname of Steens, and it just stuck. So, uh, yes, yeah, Steens is my nom de tune, as uh, the Washington Post calls it. Um, no, it wasn't Washington Post. It was the B. Yeah. I Yeah. it. But yeah, I, I, I like it a lot better than Christina Stewart because that's a mouthful and it's a boring name and stains is so much easier to find.
0: And we can Google you, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, let that be a lesson to everybody, both to parents-to-be as well as artists and creators-to-be, that there is some virtue in that. Well, thanks again. And um, thank you for joining me on the show. And to our listeners, um, I am E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn on Twitter. You may certainly find me there quite easily. There's a lot of good stuff coming up, other creator interviews. We will definitely be covering Doom Patrol season two. You can believe it. And I am still working on that uh, round table talking about systems of abuse in the comic book industry. So stay in touch.